1: to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast. Coming to you from Richmond, Virginia, my name is Ryan McGee, and joining me in Southampton, England, is our Professor of peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, we have an interview today that we will get to after the news, but we're really excited. We're, uh, we're going to go to the Southern Hemisphere for this interview.
0: Yes, and I wasn't able to participate because trying to schedule Europe, North America, and Australia for an interview is impossible.
1: Correct. So yeah, I took the reins on the interview, but you uh, you were able to feed me some questions, but it, uh, it was pretty good.
0: Good. Glad to hear it. I haven't actually listened to it yet, even though you sent me the audio, because I was busy all weekend. That's right.
1: You were busy, and the result was curling's coming home.
0: If <laughs> Is Southampton the home of curling?
1: Curling's coming home, Jonathan. That's what I read from the text you sent me after you were victorious at your Bonspiel Spiel.
0: Yeah, we won the bondspiel. spiel. I mean, I, I'm kind of puzzled. I think I may be the only person from Southampton who's ever curled, though.
1: <laughs> but yeah, curling's coming home. All so right. You finished, you finished first at a bondspiel that Ross White was at, but it would be incorrect to say that you beat Ross White because for some reason, England and Scotland play by bondspiel rules that no human can possibly understand the rules to.
0: Well, all right, let's, yeah, it's true. So it is true. The final standings were Team Havercroft first, Team Ross White second. And so as I texted you by the laws of whatever, the transitive property of logic, um, we're the world gold medalists. (laughs) (laughs) Now, if you want the real story, so basically Ross's brother, Rory's the rink manager, at Preston at the Flower Bowl. So R- Rorty's uh, basically invited his brother down and his mom and his sister put in a fun team. And then Ross didn't show up for the first game. He, he actually didn't show up for the first two games. Uh, he, was, he was probably he at Ross
1: Patterson's wedding based right. off social media. Okay, so
0: good some good social media snooping. So that maybe he was there. I don't know where he was. Maybe he thought it's the summer spiel or maybe he didn't care because it's the summer spiel at the Flower Bowl in Preston. But... He then proceeded to show up. They fell behind 4-1 because I was kind of out of the, the kind of watching, scoreboard watching, which he shouldn't do, but I was doing because it was fun. Then he just rattled off three five-point ends in a row. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so in in Britain, they use a system called the Schenkel, which is basically a very complicated points system invented by the Swiss, which I hate, as we've discussed many times in this podcast. <laughs> And uh, so one of the consequences, we actually never played Ross White's team because that's the way the shinkle goes. So it kind of broke our way this time. Often it doesn't.
1: (laughs) Usually you get shinkled into playing Ross White and then the result is not great for you. But this time the shinkle worked out in your favor and you can say that you finished first at a bond spiel that, that Ross White participated in. Do you get any uh wct points for the preston flower bowl summerspiel
0: i think so i think that's the strength of field multiplier is going to be through the roof send it um, to jerry we'll send it we'll call jerry up uh people who want to sponsor whatever the name of our team is right now have her done restless. um you can talk to ryan he's our agent you can take a 10 percent cut ryan <laughs> oh fantastic uh, and uh, we're booking our tickets to the Vegas Slam.
1: Heck yeah, man. That's a <laughs> the little known that the Preston Summer Spiel is a qualifier for the Vegas Grand Slam. Yeah, for sure. Which, <laughs> it is apparently. <laughs> apparently, we'll get the Grand Slam schedule uh, in a couple weeks. I'm sure they're working out what on earth to do with the fact that the border is not open yet. Apparently, the border, I've heard rumors that the border might open soon. So maybe they're waiting for that to be official before determining whether or not a slam will be in vegas this year but we'll find out soon yeah so before we get to our interview with lynn gill of the australian curling federation we do have some news that we want to run through real quick um other than jonathan winning his bond spiel and we do start off with with sad news um with the passing of Hans Madsen, um, if you have not heard of hans Hans is basically curling super fan he 's at most uh, most of the important events in curling and he's you know you can tell him by his wigs and his long white beard, um, just a really beloved figure in curling and uh, when Hans passed away, you saw no end to the number of tributes on social media uh basically beloved by everyone around the curling world uh it was very sad news to to hear of hans passing and you know the the big events just won't seem the same without seeing him in the crowd
0: yeah it's uh sad and um you know curling needs fans like hans basically it's it kind of adds to the color to the game it makes a lot of these big events um Kind of events, if you will. So it's sad to hear of his passing. He definitely kind of contributed a lot to the game as a as a super fan over the years.
1: Yeah, we will, I will miss seeing Hans on my screen. That is for sure. Up next, Jonathan. Moving to news out of the Nigerian Curling Federation. They are going to host the first hopefully first annual african floor curling championship coming up uh, this december december 6th to 13th being host, uh, being hosted by the nigerian curling federation and in addition to nigeria they are saying that teams from Senegal, Gambia, Kenya, the Cameroon, and South Africa have already signed up. So this is really cool. I believe the folks from Rock Solid Productions, and they're the ones behind the, the floor curling sets that you can buy, I believe they're the main sponsor of this. But this is, this is outstanding. I think that floor curling is one of the ways that you can introduce the sport to places that don't have ice and I know the Nigerian Federation is working on getting an ice rink built in Nigeria but until they realize that dream this is great to get a a curling championship played on african soil I think this is fantastic
0: yeah it's it's a cool it's a cool idea for sure it's a good way to i get more people involved in the game it's basically i think the same setup as is used in the rocks and rings program right so Correct yeah and I, that so it's a good way in places which don't have ice because as we all know building ice rinks is not cheap so it's a good way to kind of get enthusiasm for the sport off the ground and it was a great idea to kind of create a a continental championship if you will
1: yeah in talking to our episode we did with Harold Woods from team Nigeria he talked about doing a floor curling clinic uh, when he went to uh, Nigeria to help out with that and said it had much higher attendance than he thought it would. So it appears to be that there's some uh, enthusiasm for floor curling in Nigeria already. Kenya, I believe, is already recognized as a federation by the WCF. So really cool that you have these additional nations that have signed up for the floor curling championship.
0: Yeah, and that may be a way to get get more nations to join the WCF too.
1: Yep. Uh, Moving on to Europe, where we do have some good news. We talked about at our last episode that the world mixed was canceled partially due to kind of fixture congestion as it were among WCF events and uh, basically the in the ensuing transaction was the they announced that the European seed championship is on and it will be the third weekend in September. The actual dates will depend on the total number of entries, but good to see the European Seas back on. It was obviously not played last season. Kind of different because the Seas is usually held at the end of the season in I think April or May. Uh, and this t- this time it'll be in in September. So good to see that the European Sea is back on because it's it's a big event for some of these developing or you know nations kind of that are that are growing rapidly in europe
0: yeah i mean i think it also matters because do these i guess not right so if you're in the sea pool i don't i don't even understand how the qualification is going anymore but uh, the
1: top the top two will get to play in the B's, which will be in november
0: yeah so I any mean, part of the rules of the wcf is in theory any nation's supposed to be able to qualify for a world championship each season that that may mean you start down at the sea and work your way up. But every, every nation is supposed to have a shot. So they've obviously decided to prioritize that event over the mixed. As we said last time, I hope this doesn't mean the end of the mixed and the, the World Seniors. Because I think these events matter a lot too uh, for the growth and development of the game. But it's good to see these other events coming back on the calendar.
1: And then final bit of news that you actually passed along to me is Bridge Curling announced their... Teams basically, they're funded athletes for the upcoming 2021 22 season, and really the big news here is there isn't really a named team Muirhead yet, which is important because they will have to go through the Olympic qualification event to qualify for Beijing. But there's a list of, I believe, 10 athletes here out of which they will select the team that will go to the olympic qualifier and you got to think that eve muirhead is going to skip that team but basically combined team aiken and team muirhead that existed last year they're kind of combined in this podium and potential podium squad out of which they will select a team to send to the oqe
0: yeah so they've yeah they've rattled off a set of people i i guess yeah part of it's the oqe I, I, we don't really know exactly what's happening, but it is interesting that they've provided a list this year where normally they kind of just outline the squad. So what that probably means is there's going to be a lot of time spent this summer kind of at the National Curling Academy in Sterling, kind of working on different team, team lineups and team dynamics and trying to sort out who the lineups are and who will get to go to, to that event.
1: All right, so we will look for more news out of British curling as it pertains to the team that they are sending to the women's Olympic qualifier. All right, Jonathan, let's get on to our interview that we had with Lynn Gill. She is currently the secretary for the Australian Curling Federation. She is also a native Aussie, and we specifically wanted to talk to her because of that. Obviously, there's a lot of Canadian expats that are in the Australian Curling Federation who curl either recreationally or in the high-performance aspect, but we wanted to talk to someone who found the sport uh, despite being a native Aussie. So she gets into that. She gets into kind of her first attempts to start curling, and which led to the second attempts, which actually led to her getting on the ice and getting a club formed in Brisbane, but she tells us the unique challenges that they face as they work to get the first dedicated rink built in Australia and uh, the, the challenges they face from having a, a curling season that is basically the exact opposite of all the other curling nations. So uh, really interesting to talk to her.
2: I was born in Sydney, but my parents decided to move to the country, which uh, to Cowra, which is a small Country town, about four hours west of Sydney, and where we were raised on farms and and sort of had the country life, if you like. Um, so I guess generally living there, we were involved heavily in the community, like you would in a small town. And obviously, the best way to get involved is through just traditional sports that we used to play, like netball, football, swimming. I was a bit of a swimmer at one point. And water skiing, there was a dam close by, so we do a lot of those activities. Um, it helped fill the time in, I guess, and it was, it was exciting and a lot of fun. There was a roller skating rink that they adapted from a picture theatre. Uh, so at night you'd watch movies and then then you'd uh, be able to roller skate underneath. It, was, it did lean a little bit like a picture theatre, you know, but um, it was a good way to develop, I guess, um, good balance. So I sort of put it that it was one of the ways I could really developed core strength. So that was that was a good pickup for me and lots of fun. So it was good fun. And then later I went to a university um Charles Sturt Uni, which was close in a town called Bathurst. You might know it with the the racing, car racing, the Bathurst um, races. And there I learnt to ski for the first time when I was 18. And then my first job after uni was actually as a ski instructor. So Uh, When I moved, uh, part of my degree was moving to Oregon State University, and I did uh, one of my subjects was uh, snow skiing, so I did that as a subject and became pretty good, I guess, so I came back and then pursued that. So I've always kind of liked doing a lot of unique and different sports, and um, I guess that was one of the attractions. Curling was, for me, it was something a bit different to the traditional sports I'd grown up with, Yeah.
1: So, so how were you first introduced to curling? Was it actually while you were in Oregon or were you first introduced it while you were in Australia?
2: No, I had never seen it before and um, I was living back in Sydney at that time, married. I was probably pretty old, like 30, and saw it at the Olympics. It must have been the 1998 Olympics. I think okay. that's when they introduced it back into, yep. the, into the Winter Olympics and went, what a weird and crazy-looking sport. (laughs) I've got to try it. So that really did, um, I just had no idea what they were doing and not many people I don't think even knew about it at that point. So it was quite uh, something different. And because the players, I don't like to say it too much, but they were older at the time, I thought that was something I could do potentially in the future and not something that I was too old for anymore. So they were the two attractions, that it's something I could pursue at my age, I guess, and that it looked just so quirky and interesting. I had to do it. And so from that, um, at the time, we lived close to a rink in Sydney, an ice rink in Sydney, and I rang them the next day sort of thing and said, hey, do you have curling? And with that, they had no idea what I was talking about really (laughs) And they sort of didn't give me any leads or anything like that. They didn't say there was a club around or they had no idea of um, who to talk to. So I kind of just left it at the time I was thinking of having children anyway and a family. So I left it for about five years, I guess. Um, And then at that time, when my last daughter was born, we moved to Brisbane and um, she was probably a few months old. And when we moved, we moved, happened to move near the Boondall ice rink. And I thought, ooh, when I've got time, I am going to start something for myself because I'd had babies and babies and really needed to try something different and always was interested in that. So that led me to, um, I guess, once I settled, uh, to ring them and say, do they have curling? And they actually knew what I was talking about, which is oh, wow. really interesting, yeah.
1: You actually went closer to the equator in the...
2: (laughs) And I thought, um, okay, and the lady I was talking to, because our rinks in Brisbane, there's two, and they're both run by the skating um, membership. And um, somewhere along the line, the other rink, which is on the south side, we're on the north side, they had under a staircase dusty old stones. And she said... If you get a group together, we will transport them over here, dust them off, get them out. And uh, I think there was two sets at the time. And uh, we'll uh, give you a a time slot and you can begin going.
1: Do you have any idea where those stones had come from?
2: I have tried because I have tried so hard to figure out um, how they got them. I haven't been able to do that The two like managers that were in charge of the development of the ice rinks, they had passed away by the time I kind of became. And I sort of asked a lot of the older people who were involved in the skating, and um, they they didn't they weren't aware of how how they actually got them. But it must, I, I'd love to know. I have I have tried, and I haven't stopped trying. I will try and find find out. But they were under the staircase, dusty, waiting for someone to use them. And I went, yay! But at the same time, I'd been asking a lot of friends that I'd been making and any Canadians, if they knew anything, could they teach me, if I got, you know, some groups together. My brother was interested, um, a few friends were interested, so we kind of just put it. There was an ad in the paper and we got together. So I'm actually a foundation member of Queensland. Yeah, and one of the few um, left. There's only about three of us left from that original back in 2005.
1: Yeah. So that, wow, well, yeah, so that's pre-Facebook. So you had to do like an old school newspaper ad trying to find Canadians in, <laughs> in exactly. Brisbane. Exactly, it was just it's...
2: a friend and a newspaper kind of thing. Um, and the thing was, um, even for equipment, because um, not long after that, I actually joined the women's team. And, um, and to get equipment or to even see a game, a real live game, I, um, I I couldn't, I, I had mm-hmm. to just rely on what people were telling me and when I ordered the shoes I had no idea what I was ordering but they came and I went to my first tournament with them in the box still <laughs> ready to put on what do I do with these and how do they work? <laughs> so it was a big learning curve for me, a bit silly at the time I guess but really exciting.
1: I don't know. I made the same mistake the first time that I wore <laughs> curling shoes and not just a slip-on slider was taking them out of the box for a bond spiel. And that uh-huh. first time, that first time out of out of the hack is is uh-huh. an eye opener. Yes, <laughs> if you're yes. used to the slip-on slider. <laughs> yes. So how many how many people uh, were in the club there in Brisbane when you guys first started?
2: Yeah, there was probably about fifteen. Okay. Um, were they
1: Mostly expats, or were you able yes. to get a few uh, yes, Aussies definitely. as well?
2: So I think when I uh, with with my group, there was probably about uh, five or six not expats, and then the um, everyone else was either Canadian or Scottish.
1: Okay. at the, At the center, and
2: that was the the interest they had. They knew what they were doing and wanted mm-hmm. to you know, sort of get a bit of that. Um, home feel, I guess and um, were keen Um, and I remember being taught by um, one of the men Australian men who was um, an ex-junior Scottish player who just moved over and I think he gave me an hour sort of instructional lesson and that was it (laughs) I was ready to go so um, he has since not done it for a very long time because he you know did family and um, did as much curling as he wanted to at the time. So we do actually get a lot of expats and that's, you know, the, it's important for them to be involved. And and they um, they do it for a long time and then sometimes they, yeah, it's hard to sustain the membership, to be honest, in, a, mm-hmm. in our rink. Um, we always have enough to have a league active, but um, it doesn't grow per se. So we have some increase and then some decrease decrease
1: and then it's sort of yeah. So I mean overall in Australia how is the sport how has the sport grown since you've been involved and then how are you how are you guys able to attract uh, new members when you know Australia is not particularly known for winter sports.
2: No, although we do follow the winter olympics very closely. Okay. Anything anyone from Australia is representing we we always get on board and and like to support and the winter games, although not as probably as well known as the summer, um, people do watch it, and that's where they mm-hmm. they find a lot of the the interest they have in the winter sports. Um, Melbourne, of course, um, has met a lot of the winter sports active anyway, because that's the, that's the nature of. Um, mm-hmm the location it's, all mm-hmm. it's got lots of good skiing and those sorts of things brisbane itself has just opened up a new aerial skiing facility which is um now allowing a lot of those winter athletes actually to stay within queensland and, and train so they're potentially they're trying to to make it more um viable for for athletes to stay at home rather rather than um, heading overseas so back to the question really is that um we have um, increased a uh, membership by one group. So Western Australia have now opened up a rink. We do have three rinks operating um, and the membership, we've got about 170 active curlers. Okay. So we have um, actually going to the rinks. We do have, of course, COVID being, being an issue has prevented the growth a little bit in some states um, Queensland's been pretty lucky. We've been able to curl all year without, um, without. To, we're just modifying how we approach curling. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and Western Australia have been pretty good to sustain theirs too. So it has grown a bit. And I think the main thing that um, I can see changing is that, as far as Queensland, our membership really are young Australian-born. Uh, Players now that most of our wow. membership no longer are the traditional expats. That um, it's the majority that are you know twenty and nineteen. That sort of in oh, their teens, kind of. So I really give it a big um, a boost. Of yeah, I think it'll progress even further with the interest.
1: Why do you think that is? Is it because I mean I'm just thinking you know there in, in the winter, there's not a lot of recreational activities outside of, you know, Australian rules football and rugby league. And those are obviously big time contact sports. But in terms of non-contact sports in the winter, is there just not a lot of, of options in Australia? Is that maybe part of it? Or is it just the increased exposure from the Olympics, you think?
2: Well, I think it's more the exposure from the Olympics. I think um, people um, who don't like the traditional football, or have tried it and it's really not for them they've liked to try something different that they might be able to um, play or get involved in more and have more options of progressing through um through the different levels so they see it as a good way to maybe one day represent australia and that's always a great um option for them they see it like that anyway i think Um, it gives them um, just a different um, activity to do in the winter rather than something that's obviously not physical uh, on them all the time in in a like a, a contact way. It's less contact. and so probably better for your body long term than what we do.
1: <laughs> and it allows you to be a little bit more social. I think mean, that's my favorite. Yeah. I don't know I don't know about you, but that's my favorite aspect of the game is the social aspect.
2: Well, I wouldn't have known that there was such a big, strong social aspect until I had been going overseas and done many competitions. Oh, really? and done competitions. Because here it's on a Wednesday night, really late, mm. and that we're in, we're out, and they don't open the bar here. I know it's different in other states, probably, but um, unfortunately, I think that's one of the things that. Um, isn't such a good thing here is that we don't have that social aspect. Really. So we always encourage them to go to any competitions to see exactly what would be what would be a traditional curling venue and and um, sort of a thing. Yeah. You know.
1: So in terms of in terms of bond spiels, like are you guys like even even social and rec bond spills? Are you guys able to not? I mean, are you guys just unable to have very many, or is it where you've you've got to go across the Tasman to the to the dedicated rink there in New Zealand?
2: Yes, we we always encourage going over to the um, Trans Tasman, which is like a, conf- a bond spiel between New Zealand and Australia, because um, that's where you really see what a dedicated ice is like. But I actually have myself once. Uh, created a bond spiel to raise money for a junior junior funding, and um, and people from Victoria came up. This was probably ten years ago now, and uh, it worked really well. And it was a lot of fun. The only thing is that we're working around uh, time schedules that suit mm-hmm. the uh, money spinner, which is the uh, public session. So we'd have shorter games but the social aspect was definitely there and it was a real hit and we'd love to have more of them it's just finding the uh, the cost and the the availability of time they're very reluctant to give up time from their mm. um their normal schedules which keep keep them functioning i guess or viable so i can yeah. understand that but um no we have done it once in queensland it was pretty good it was really fun
1: yeah for us all the best times go to the yes. hockey players so we get yes. on we get on at uh, usually 8 to 10 p.m. usually on a Thursday night but where i mean our uh, our group usually about half of them will stick around and hang out and chat for thirty yeah. minutes. But it, I mean, I've been places where the social aspect is obviously a lot better. Um, oh yes, and obviously yeah. at places where they have dedicated ice. But you yes. know, we do our we do our best with <laughs> with what we have. That's for sure. So is that kind of the big thing that's keeping you guys from from growing the sport is in Australia? Is the fact that the the nearest dedicated facility is is in New Zealand? Yes, I
2: think so. I think then um, that, that plays a big hard in it that they don't get the social aspect as much mm-hmm. and um Victoria I believe they've got a bar and they do have a lot more social and their membership uh, sustains a lot better I think um Western Street, I'm not sure what they've got um as far as social but they uh, here definitely I think that's where we find that members stay for a while a few years and then it just and, and then they tend to leave um, so we don't sustain them as much as if we had that that social contact as well. Um so yeah, i do I do think it does play a role in that
0: yeah.
1: and then i I know they recently lost their their facility but how important would it be for the country for new south wales to to be able to find ice again because i mean that's a big big population center that right now doesn't have the sport is that right
2: oh that's right and you would think if we could encourage some sort of um ice facility for them that they can use or you know be a part of it would have to open up so many more members it would be Um, really good and I know they're working uh, towards that even now there's people going and meeting other um, rinks and trying to work out different uh, ways they can you know be included I know they have stones so they're ready to go they just need the facilities to sort of work with them but it would definitely be um, encouraged and and it would be very helpful to increase membership and it's such a big population you'd have to pick up a lot of people for sure
1: Do you have any idea how many ice rinks there are total in Australia? I know you said there's two in Brisbane.
2: Probably a total of 10, maybe 15. They do a lot of pop-up sort of ice rinks, if you like. So the Sunshine Coast, which is only about an hour Mm -hmm. away, they have a facility which is a rolling skating rink, and I think they change it into uh, during the summer holidays. They put it as an ice skating, same with uh, Cross Harbour. But they're shorter facilities because we have looked at those as maybe – holding a bonspiel, but they're a shorter rink or smaller facility so they don't have the length that we need to have a full length um curling curling sheet so but um so we do a lot of pop-ups in australia
1: and i imagine the expense with getting a rink built there you know ice chillers themselves aren't cheap but then to get one to australia i imagine just increases the expense of getting a chiller like tenfold basically
2: yeah yeah like anything shipping anything down is quite expensive especially equipment although we would probably get a lot of support from the world curling federation they have a lot of they're, they're very um inclusive and try to encourage any new like to help assist in any way not necessarily just funding but other Mm -hmm. other options Um, what they what it is really i think is one of the uh issues is the sustainability of the facility so if we were to get a dedicated ice rink Mm
0: -hmm. then
2: we would have to make sure it could sustain operationally at the cost Uh, long term and I think that is where we would um, we would struggle to have just on its own we would have to this is just from my perspective and the years doing it is that um, getting people in there all day to to pay for the cost of the running of it I think you're right it's just so expensive so how you know how you'd almost want to be in partnership with other ice sports so you could still Mm -hmm. share the facility and the cost but still use it at better times than um than what we're getting at the moment
1: yeah jonathan tells me that's kind of the scottish model is they have a rink and they basically complete basically you split the week in half and half of, the, half of the week it's skating sports and then they basically completely redo the ice into uh, use a usable curling rink and then for three days out of the week it's curling.
2: Yep, that to me sounds like a model that would work better in Australia, even mm-hmm. initially anyway, and then increase the numbers. Um, I think curling has always got that issue, especially like in... Um, well you would know you can only fit so many people on 34 so the cost has to be Mm -hmm. split between those 34 and um whereas a public session you can like where they just skate they you can fit hundreds in there so your cost is a lot different um in that way for the actual sport itself you can only fit so many on so that's where it gets a bit costly
1: are there currently any campaigns to get a dedicated facility built in australia
2: Oh yes, always um, looking for <laughs> yes a dedicated ice rink. Um, each so what we we began with the Olympic Winter Int- Institute of um, Sport for Australia is uh, devised a strategic plan which you can access on our website um, at, at to see what the str- strategies are. But one of them is to uh, eventually get a dedicated curling uh, rink and. Um, what we do there is that every year they do a like a meeting and they get together and sort of uh, swap ideas and um, sort of try and um, talk about all the different incentives each state has, and then states run themselves to whatever programs they can and um, what support they get from ministers or you know the local. local uh, support and sponsorships they can get so um, I believe Western Australia is doing quite a good job at at contacting a lot of people and there's a bit of interest in developing that we're in contact Queensland with other ice sports to try and get some initiatives there with the government it's all in the planning stages (laughs) it's um, again yeah it's it's voluntary so everyone's you know putting as much time in as they can to get it up and running it's kind of like a multi-faceted campaign really but states run their own, own programs or... yeah.
1: if you all if you if all of the states were able to get together and not <laughs> really care about where the yeah. facility would go <laughs> yes. would it be a lot i mean i imagine you'd be able to get one built a lot quicker right <laughs> but from yeah, what i've yeah. seen there's a little bit of regional a lot of well a lot of regional rivalry there in australia as far as as gunning yeah, for things
2: like well, this. like any country, yes, you do have uh, state mm-hmm. rivalries. But uh, ultimately, I think we'd all, if, if we felt that someone was getting close or a state was getting close, we'd certainly be on board and, and support where we could, that's for sure, because one in Australia is better than one in New Zealand, our closest one, although we love <laughs> New Zealand. <laughs> um, it's still um, a bit... Uh, easier to get within the, the states yeah so um it, again where is another problem yes where 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 do you put it so yeah. so yeah.
1: being in the southern hemisphere your seasons are the opposite you're currently going through we're recording this in july and it's currently your currently your winter and most of us aren't curling so what unique challenges does it present you guys to have your season basically be the exact opposite of, of most of the curling nations?
2: Yeah, that, it does make it hard for when we're uh, really getting ready to um, compete at all the world events. Um, so one, in 2013, I was in the World Mixed Doubles and I literally hadn't played for three months, got off the yeah. plane and had one hour prep time and then started playing. So it does make it really hard to sort of peak at the right time. So if if now that we've got time or if we have our own money, we can go and travel somewhere, which means time out of work and, and home life just to go and train to prepare to peak at the right time so it does Mm -hmm. make it difficult yeah
1: and so most of that is most of that going to new zealand do they keep the ice in at the dedicated rink they have during the during the northern hemispheres (laughs) yeah they actually
2: are open all year round so it's really quite good and and you can always really get some time there to train uh, I must admit they do have a bit of an advantage that way mm-hmm. above us that they have it 24-7 uh, or as long as they want all year. But uh, it do- doesn't necessarily mean we go there particularly. That may, A lot of our travel goes to the Northern Hemisphere, so we try and pick places that are either on the way or that are in the country itself but in another part of the country so that the mm. travel time between training and events is a lot less or a lot less... Um, stressful but basically it's just where we can uh, fit it in and at the cheapest rate because it's also funded and and where we can i think we went to uh before finland we went to uh the united states up near rhode island and they had a little facility they've now closed it unfortunately because it was a golf a golfing range as well and they've Taken, a, I think we were the last ones to use it, really. But went there to train for the Finland event for the World Bees with the juniors. So it's just wherever we can at the time. It's all about destination. Where can we go? That's good <laughs> <laughs> as well. It's always yeah. nice to go somewhere. Hmm.
1: Yeah, Jonathan's there for the World Bees every year. He's there coaching uh, England, and they're usually finding yes. like in Latvia or Estonia to to play yes. there on their way up to on their way up to Finland.
2: Yes. Yeah. Well, I would know him because we always play um, England. Is it the women's that he He,
1: played? He usually helps with the women. He's the main coach for the junior men's team, but he helps helps with the women.
2: Yeah. I think there was a Canadian uh, lady, Lisa, was doing it for the women. Is that right? Lisa Farnell.
1: Yeah. Yep.
2: Yeah, she's great. Love love her, she's nice. And and I know John, I think we play we usually do a coach um game. And I think I've played with oh, John. Cool. He, he looks. He's got blonde hair. I, I'm pretty sure I see him. All I
1: the think time. it's mostly gray now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he's, he's, not here. he's not here, so I can say that he has to talk to me every week. So I'm going to take credit for a lot of that. A lot of that gray hair, but since he's not yeah. here, I'll say no. It's not blonde. It's gray.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, I do, I'm quite familiar with him. Yeah, I see him all the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah. Like we just try and get whatever facilities we can. Cost is always an issue. It's always self-funded.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and then when when we think about high performance, we always tend to think about it, you know, from the athlete perspective. But with curling, there's so much that so much more that goes into it than that, especially with the playing surface itself. So, you know, how is Australia able to develop, not, you know, not just athletes but but ice techs and coaches as well?
2: Yes, I think it comes down to um, the interest of the individual at this point. Um, like uh so in my perspective um i had before my daughters started curling We i had a small pocket of juniors that i was always keen to develop having the experience of uh, being part of curling internationally and i just felt like i needed to give something back so i would always try and uh, well i started coaching the, the junior teams and I, I think you just have to, if you're interested in those those um, avenues, that you have to almost um, sort, source it yourself. Um, so to become a qualified coach, I actually worked with Laurie Whedon, a, a, a player that I played with um, in the women's, and we uh, paid for an instructor to come down and, uh, from Canada and, we uh, worked eventually worked it with uh, New Zealand, and so we paid for her to come down and and wow. got trained as a level one coach. So you can't you really um, go out and source the things yourself um, mm-hmm. at the moment. That's how it is. World Curling Federation since then have started doing lots of programs, and again they assisted me at the early stages where. I would go up and uh, be the annoying person, and say, "What can I? How can I get a, be a better coach, or how? What programs, or how can I get involved?" And uh, they eventually, back in 2010, they had a tr- little two training camp. So they said you could go for that, and then train at the World Curling Junior Camp a- as a, an assistant instructor. So I did that, and that's where I got a lot of my um, training from as a coach but um generally just sourcing it myself to be honest and then i was
1: about to ask was it was (laughs) it it was cheaper to fly someone in from canada than for you guys to fly out for a uh for a for a coaching clinic huh correct
2: yes wow yes
1: and so so have they have they started doing like clinics like at that world junior b when they know a lot of coaches are going to be there
2: yes that's right so um so since then, uh, they do offer a lot more programs and um, they're closely in contact, which is really fantastic. But I know they uh, they did support me. And I have since done the, the World camp Junior Camp again in 2017 with my daughters. so that was really interesting. Because they, they went to it and they said, look, if they're coming, why don't you come? And I went, yes, please. So <laughs> they're, they're very, very supportive of that. Um, but yeah, I think as far as and they've got the technicians, uh, uh, like course that you can attend and things like that. So I, at the moment, it's just really if you're interested and um, and then they, if World Curling Federation can offer you, you know, mm-hmm. um, support in that way.
1: Plus, I mean, there, there's only so much you can do with skating like ice. Like we, I've I've known people from our clubs, and I've only. I've only been a member of clubs that, that curled on skating ice i have known people who have gone and tried to get, you know, just at least some instruction on how, Hey, how can we make this as good as we possibly can? But yeah, there's only so much that an ice, a true ice tech can teach you for, for our ice.
2: Yeah. And honestly, it's whoever's keen enough to pick up the pebbler and just pebble, but uh, we have those young, um, younger Uh, members now that like even Tali and uh, my daughters who have seen it many times and been to many events and know what the surface should be like I mean she puts it on and starts pebbling too because um, they're just bringing in a whole heap of knowledge too just for being exposed to it as well but um, yes we don't really have um, too many trained technicians it's whoever thinks they know what to do is the best
1: (laughs) you, you mentioned your daughters and you've represented Australia a few times, but in t- 2018, you got to play at the Pacific Asia, Ch- Asia Championships alongside three of your daughters. Just tell how special was that that tournament for you?
2: Honestly, when, uh, when we put together, I, like I have said it before, that it's always important for me to develop. And I, I was involved in junior curling way before the girls were involved, but then eventually they came with some friends. So I obviously pursued that and um, and it came to a point where we knew they were heading out of junior. So um, Laurie, again, a friend that friend I was speaking about earlier thought we'll, we'll just mentor them. And so put them in the nationals with us. <laughs> And um, really surprised but very proud to have won the Nationals with them. And um, I guess it was a credit to all the time invested with money as well as um, the time we took to do that. So it felt like um, quite surreal in one way and amazing that it actually happened. But at the same time, we had been working a lot towards that over many years. So it sort of felt like, you know, yay, we got some credit where maybe it was due. (laughs) I don't know, but it was fun. I know that and uh, loved every minute. But ironically, just a week ago, we are still playing together in the local league and have won a game last week, you know, 10-2. So we're still together playing. That's awesome. (laughs) That's pretty good. Yeah. Uh
1: Yeah. any any chance of you guys getting the team back together to try for nationals again in the future
2: oh always we're always putting it in it just gets canceled <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because of covid but oh we haven't lost sight of where i mean i i obviously am probably heading more towards seniors these days but um, <laughs> i'm ha- happy to keep progressing so that they eventually develop a team and uh, look they honestly outkill me uh, hands down um, my two oldest uh very good obviously but Mm -hmm. um i know the second one um actually learnt on a a curling a a fake curling rink i had installed in my shed at home she learned how to do that and she's she's actually quite a good curler too she's very technical um but that was how i prepared really for the world's um, because there was no ice available so it was a portable ice rink in my made of um that really uh, like perspexy type Yeah. Just plastic. I
1: mean, yeah. You got to tell me more about this. Like, what? so what was the surface?
2: It was like a, it was, um, actually, uh, a demonstration demonstrating, um, little portable ice rink for, um, the like malls and centers. So you would oh, take okay. it and establish like a little skating area, but it was all plastic. And, um, but it had enough roughness in the surface to like a pebble. So it actually mm-hmm. worked um, really well. And then I just would get a kettle and put it on wheels and that would be my, <laughs> that's how I, that's how I taught my second and Tyler, of course, had already tried it at the ice rink, but she, uh, I don't know how, but she became very interested in, uh, and ha- is very heavily involved in curling since then. But yeah, um, that's how I did it. But it belonged to a as my daughter's coach who was a skate. They were skaters before they became curlers. So they were at the rink skating, making all the divots that we have to curl yeah. over. Very angry. But um, they, yeah, they, then they just progressed naturally. I guess we're all at the rink most of the time. So it was really easy progression for them to become curlers. And they came with friends. So it was like a social thing. And I wanted it to be social for them so that they'd enjoy it and get some travel out of it and get to see what it was like overseas so that that in curling terms so that they knew where they had to go at such a young age. I know that they both started international curling at, when they were 12 or 11 oh, wow. and um, they needed that exposure to know where they were heading and who they're up against so it kind of worked in the end i think
1: yeah you, you've basically raised the next generation of australian yes. curlers right because yeah all three of them are in the sport
2: yep yep and um yeah i'm very proud of that i guess and proud of them to stick to st- stick with it and enjoy it they really like our household at night it's just curling 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 it does get a bit boring mm-hmm. i think that. How, how many <laughs> households
1: do you think are like that in australia
2: <laughs> yeah, not many i don't think no, um, I can think of a few. Um, maybe uh, Tali's partner Dean, their family would be heavily involved. So yeah, and there's a few around. But yeah, it is it is nice nice to make a team.
1: Yeah, Tali and Dean they've they've had a lot of success at mixed doubles, including finishing fourth in 2019 at World. So they've shown that. Australia right now is capable of competing with the best in a discipline that leads to an Olympics like what impact do you think it would have if Australia were to qualify for an Olympics in curling
2: well we always hear rumors and i, I mean there, there's no written signed off document saying for sure but it would we would presume that if they did do really well or made the Olympics and did, you know, well at the Olympics, that we would be seeing a dedicated curling ice somewhere. I, I would oh, imagine, wow. yeah, they would pursue so, it
1: more. It's that chicken and the egg scenario, though, right? Like, you know, if you get the dedicated rink, they have a much better chance of making it. But now they're saying, no, you, 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 the chicken has to come first and you have to get there in order to get your dedicated rink.
2: But but having said that, I can understand that in in a way that um, if they have the Mm -hmm. uh, the ability um, that they, to get real a lot of, like technically they're good. So now it's just in competition. So where do you go for competition? Well, I think you'd find that um, smaller places like even New Zealand, it's the competition they're lacking. So they need to go over and compete with these bigger teams. And they consistently have gone over and played leading up to 2020 that actually got cancelled in the end, but they were, you know, involved in lots of competitions and winning and thirds and seconds, like meddling. So they were cons- being quite consistent for a while, but they, I mean, they'd need that competition. So even though if we get the dedicated curling ice, you need those higher level teams mm-hmm. to play against, I think, as well. And I think that's how it's helped them a lot to be going over to world junior B's or junior competitions internationally because you're playing against uh, potentially the players you're going to play when you're older anyway or that, the high level. And it gives them a bit more exposure about that and what's what's required, I guess. So...
1: What do you think the exposure would be like if there was an Australian team at either the Olympics or even the Paralympics? because like, how much how much curling gets shown during the Winter Olympics now? And what do you think it would be if Australia was ever there?
2: I think the Winter Olympics has come um, into most households since uh, Steve Bradbury won his medal. Mm-hmm. It kind of, even though it was a, an unusual circumstance, it certainly in, like ignited the interest in in winter. So I think if they can cover it a lot, and I think being on the same uh, times where people will be awake and be able to watch it more, uh, the exposure will be a lot better than what it usually is when it's in Europe or uh, on the other side of the hemisphere. So I think it's going to be even better than ever now for people to watch it at some really good times that people will be able to. Well, obviously, if Australia gets in, they're going to promote what athletes there are. And edit. I think it would definitely help in, in like tenfold. It would be great.
1: Um, from, a, from a funding perspective, when they had the semifinal appearance at Worlds, did that open up more funding for the federation from the Australian Olympic Committee?
2: Yeah, definitely. It's always uh, result-based here. Mm-hmm. So if you've managed to achieve something significant or in place there is a a hierarchy of the you know funding or support that you're going to get to continue to improve from that base if you like so um, it definitely raised the profile of curling and it allowed Dean and Tali now to be individual athletes that are supported by the OWIA so Their profile is now on part of their website as, you know, up-and-coming athletes, and and it does help tremendously. Yes, that was well worth coming that position. (laughs) Helped a lot. All
1: right, so tell us just what you think the future looks like for for curling in Australia.
2: Well, I can see Australia really being part of the A group for many years, so either in the mixed doubles uh, or even – women's and men's coming up in, in future years sort of trying to get to that next like next tier up if you like I think is where we're, we're headed for sure there's a lot of young talent coming coming through and um and are really interested in in sticking it out like not just just doing it for a little while and then once life and work happens they're moving on they're really trying to make something um work with curling and and just love it just really love being involved in it so that to me shows that there's going to be longevity in it all
1: I know I've seen a lot of different things on the table for qualification for the A group at Worlds for the four person game, including folding the US and Canada and really the, well, the rest of the rest of the America zone into what is currently the Pacific Asia zone. Is that something you guys would be for or would you rather keep it um, the way it is now?
2: Um, I think I think it's always good to mix it up in the southern hemisphere as far as when we go to the Pacifics we're playing normally against three of the top five teams in the world to get two places and one and if you miss out on that place there's a possibility of going another round into still some pretty high level so maybe by reconfiguring it we may, have uh, more opportunity to progress a bit more. Honestly, I think when we went, like you said, to the 2009, uh, 18 Pacifics, we our first game was against the bronze medal winning team, <laughs> which the yeah. score did show that. But yeah. literally, and then we've got another team that was in the top five and then it was another team. So we've always competed for two spots against some, Pretty high high level team, so maybe yeah, reconfiguring it so that maybe there's better options for us.
1: Yeah. Right, and then the some other options that Jonathan has talked about is getting rid of the zones and just going to World A, World B, World C. Is that yeah? Is that is that something that would be helpful for the Southern Hemisphere countries?
2: Well, I I've only been in that sort of format as part of the juniors and. Um, Clearly, um, it, it, I know from uh, the New Zealand um, team they were able to mm-hmm. to achieve quite well, and I think if not given that opportunity, um, then they may not have been able to get there as quick or um, to do that. So I, it's not such a bad option. I think if you if you're playing a variety of teams, it's going to be better because your options are going to be. Better. I, I like that
1: idea, actually. <laughs> Does he get to vote? Well, uh, I don't think, jo- no, I don't think they're ever going <laughs> to give Jonathan a vote. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want to be respectful of your time. So uh, I know we've been talking for a while. So can you just let people know where they can learn more about Australian curling? And, you know, if we happen to have any listeners in Australia, where they can go and find find their nearest league or learn to curl?
2: Uh, um, curling.org.au or the Australian website really is the best way there's a inside that there's contacts to every state there's Facebook we're on that and every state has their own Facebook Um, so even writing to them we um, we get in contact with them straight away and give them some um, details of where they can go for per state so yeah always looking for more members please come and join (laughs)
1: All right, Lynn, uh, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, I know you said you're a a Manly fan, but I don't think that Manly's (laughs) going to wind up playing Souths in the semifinals. I think they're going to avoid each other. Uh, So so good luck to Manly uh, the rest of the season as well. Uh, But, yeah, thank you you so much for joining us.
2: No, thanks, Ryan, for reaching out. And, uh, yes, good luck with Rabbitohs. I don't know. I can't support them too much. They are our writers, <laughs> but <laughs> good luck to you.
1: All right. Thank you. Thanks, thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. If you enjoyed this show, we ask you to please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can receive and is what allows our show to grow and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to us, and we will talk to you again real soon.